Addicts in the Dark is presented by Simply Sober, empowering recovery through apparel and support. Visit simplysober.biz. It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. How to cope with fear and anxiety. That's the latest workshop with Melissa Armstrong Coaching. Discover effective strategies and techniques to find the meaning in the mess and the magic of every day. Visit strongarm.ca slash events for more info and to register. So right now, the FDA is debating on whether or not to make an opioid overdose anecdote available over-the-counter all over the United States. Now, the fact that we even have to consider whether or not to provide easy access to a life-saving drug is a sobering reminder of the dire situation that we face with the opioid crisis. A final decision on this whole thing is expected by the end of the month, and What is at stake here is not just a matter of saving lives, but also a question of where our priorities lie as a society. The FDA has a responsibility to safeguard public health and safety, and making this anecdote available is a crucial step in fulfilling that duty, and I sincerely hope they will fulfill that duty. It's caller 32 and their story about addiction. Addicts in the Whoa. Yeah, uh, I can hear you. Sweet. So, you know how this goes. No names, no geographical coordinates, and a maximum of an hour. All right, yep, let's go for it. All right. Tell me your story about addiction. So, my story about addiction starts out when I was pretty young, probably 11 or 12, uh, started smoking weed, and then... I heard all the propaganda about how bad how bad it was and how it was going to destroy your life and all this shit. And I tried it, and I was like, oh, damn, like, this shit's awesome, you know? Like, I feel good and all this. And so I was like, damn, they lied to me about marijuana. So I went out and then proceeded to try basically anything I could get my get my hands on so I started experimenting with uh, psychedelics, you know, shortly after at like age 13, 14, and then started meeting more and more connections that had other other uh, substances. You know, I got into doing acid, mushrooms, ecstasy, and I mean, I started getting into it really like all that at a really young age at, you know, freshman, freshman year in high school. And then with that, people kind of start coming up to me and, you know, cause I could get various drugs and they would ask me to get drugs for him. Well, dude that I was getting my drugs from and everything was kind of like, why don't you start selling, you know, and you can start making some money and stuff. So I started doing that. And I mean, selling kind of whatever I could get my hands on and, stuff and I I loved it because I was you know middle school and stuff I was super socially awkward kid I grew up in Montana so 
I mean, just super socially awkward and drugs really helped me kind of come out of being like socially awkward. I mean, I could talk to people and stuff and I was making crazy, you know, insane amounts of money in in high school. And I was clearing, you know, sometimes $2,000 on a, on a good, on a good week, depending on what I was selling and what type, what time of year it was. So if I started hanging out with, you know, a rough group of people and everything and my parents kind of weren't exactly okay with all the people I was hanging out with and stuff. And my dad kind of had an inkling that, you know, I was selling drugs and he kind of went and tossed my room one time and he found my, my stash and all my cash and, you know, said, if you're going to do this, you know, there's the, there's the door, you know, you need to, I don't want this in my house. So I was like, you know, that I enjoy this. I enjoy doing this. I enjoy selling drugs and shit. So I, I left and started, you know, surfing couches and shit. And this is like when I was 16, you know, surfing couches and just selling, selling drugs, you know, to get by and wherever I could. So obviously you were really adamant about wanting to sell drugs so much so that you were essentially prepared to be homeless so you could keep doing so. Was there some sort of attachment to selling drugs that was more than money motivated because selling drugs can bring on bad and good attention? It did. I loved, loved the attention and girls noticing and stuff. And then it, it was just, you know, I was able to buy shit that other kids didn't have, you know, I had a nice, a nice car in high school that I bought myself, you know, but it was with drug money. And then my dad kind of brought up the point, you know, I'd see my parents every once in a while. My dad is like, you're going to get, you're going to get caught doing this. And eventually I, I did get caught. I graduated high school somehow. And nine days after I graduated high school, I was dropping off a large quantity of uh, stuff to uh, a friend of mine and we got pulled over and I didn't have any like big weight on me, but my friend and I had a scale and empty baggies in his car and everything. So the cops, you know, were kind of like, what do you have this for? And they, you know, kind of was like, who's the one distributing? Well, we just pleaded the fifth, didn't say anything. And, we were young and stuff, so the judge didn't didn't want to ruin our lives. So they let us kind of off on the distributing charge, and I had to do some uh, classes and whatnot because I swore it was all personal consumption. So I had to do uh, classes and stuff, basically lied my way through those. And then I kind of took a break from selling. I got, got with a a girl and stuff and started kind of focusing on uh, working and stuff and not really selling drugs anymore because she was a little sketched out about that whole thing. And I was living with her and her mom and her mom didn't, didn't want to have that kind of going on. Her mom kind of knew I was a drug dealer and everything. So she, she kind of put the kibosh on that. But while I was focusing on, my career and stuff, I was working insane hours doing hard labor. And a couple of my uh, coworkers 
were really into Adderall. So I started doing that to be able to like work long hours and not sleep and stuff. And then that kind of morphed into like a habit on its own, you know, and then I went back to me, me and the lady started having issues. So we broke up. And then when I broke up with her, did what kind of any single young guy does goes out and starts partying, you know, trying to pick up girls and stuff. And I didn't really drink a whole lot during high school, but I discovered that I really, really enjoyed alcohol and how that made me feel. And then combined with the Adderall, you know, I could party for days. And I, I did that after we broke up for about a year. And then her and I decided to get back together and she kind of told me, you know, you got to quit the partying and the drinking and stuff. And I was kind of, I was really hesitant, but I quit drinking and doing Adderall and stuff. But then I moved out to Oregon and things were doing, going really well. I found a decent job and stuff out there. But being like the socially awkward kid from Montana, I, it was hard for me to make friends. So then I started making friends with the, uh, people that normally would which you know were people that did drugs and sold drugs and stuff so then I started getting into a little bit heavier heavier stuff out there you know they have the the heroin and all that and I was able to kind of keep that away from I was just smoking it but I was able to keep a lot of that away from my girlfriend she didn't really know I was doing that for a long time and stuff and because I didn't really have any other bad habits, so I'd smoking a little bit of weed here and there. But I had a reaction to uh, something that I was allergic to and ended up in the hospital. And they did a bunch of tests and I popped hot for opiates. And she kind of called me out and said, like, what's up with this? So I kind of told her and that's when we decided to kind of end our relationship and I moved back to Montana and was super depressed and stuff. And I got really into the electronic music scene and stuff that was kind of popping up at the, at the time. And that was full of, you know, ecstasy, cocaine and everything. And I previously, I knew where to get all that stuff. So, you know, old habits kind of came back. I kind of got into back into selling drugs again you know i'd go pick up large quantities of ecstasy and cocaine and go to all the college towns and sell it when i was at raves and stuff and i originally was like i'm not gonna do this very much you know i'm gonna keep like keep this strictly business well i never was good at just keeping stuff strictly business so I started using my supply and then pretty soon it, it was a full-blown habit. I couldn't function without cocaine or ecstasy. And I also was drinking insane, insane amounts. And then shortly after that, I actually got some uh, bad molly that had a, that was cut with uh, bath salts and had a uh, really bad, reaction and ended up 
uh, in the in the hospital for a few days over it. Were you selling any of that product that had bath salts in it? I was, I was, and there was a few people, and there was a big scare. There was a girl that I sold uh, some of it to, and she had also a bad reaction and ended up in the hospital. So I was, you know, super scared. My friend that I was kind of business partnering up with was super scared about it. We were thinking that, you know, this girl's going to say where she got stuff from and everything. So I kind of just fire sailed it and uh, dropped it on a friend. And I told him and he came up with a bright idea just to cut it with more uh, or cut it with vitamin C to counteract the the bath salts effect because I couldn't lose uh, money on it. So he he did that and yeah, it was just a bad, you know, super paranoid after after all that happened and I was scared that the cops were going to show up at at my door. So I quit quit using cocaine and Molly and then that's when my drinking really really picked up uh for a while picked up again and I I was drinking, you know, just copious amounts was wasn't happy in life, you know, I was wasting away all my money uh, at the bar and stuff. And eventually I moved back to the town my parents were in and kind of talked with my parents and they let me move in because I told them I didn't, wasn't smoking weed and selling weed or anything anymore. And I, I wasn't. And then I got a job bartending in in town and i i started doing party promotion and started booking shows and stuff for local bands and stuff and i'm i'm starting to see like a little bit of success from that and i mean i'm i'm drinking heavy and stuff but it's not as looked down upon because i'm you know bartending and then i start picking up another Adderall habit again because all my coworkers were doing it and it was just the bad bad scene and then i moved into uh basically like a party frat house with uh one of the other bartenders that i became really good friends with and we were just partying kind of using whatever drugs we could get our hands on and stuff but eventually that the bills and stuff weren't getting paid on the house because we were snorting snorting all our our whole paychecks and stuff and drinking, you know, just copious amounts. So a friend of mine decided it would be a good idea to start manufacturing opium. His, he had a friend that was manufacturing it, but they lost their house. So we kind of let them set up shop in our, uh, in our garage to do that. And we also had a, marijuana grill operation and even with all that money that we were making and stuff and having that opium processing thing that we were doing we uh eventually lost lost the house so i found a job in another part of the state and moved down there and things were doing really good i was able to kind of keep my drinking habit and my Adderall habit and all of that from my uh, coworkers and I 
managed uh, a uh, offsite warehouse that fed a assembly line. So I spent a lot of time in there by myself. And eventually my uh, boss looked in my garbage can and saw that there was beer cans and stuff. And he kind of called me out on it. And I got a, a drug test and everything. And they weren't okay with everything but they said you know it's like your first strike we aren't gonna really do anything but if you test hot again you know you're done well three months later I ended up just getting laid off from that job and got really really depressed and really really I mean just ramped up my drinking and I was on unemployment so I was just sitting at home getting super lit and just hating life. And then I decided one day I was going to drive four hours home to my hometown to go see a a friend of mine that just got out of treatment and got sober and everything. And he kind of told me, you know, like come home, but he didn't mean come home that instant. And I, so I hail Mary, you know, home Well, on the way, I blew the motor in my in my Jeep and I was on the side of the road and a sheriff pulls up and I get to talking with him and stuff and next thing you know he's like we we kind of have a problem well I look in my uh Jeep he looked in there and then the passenger seat is uh you know my pipe I was smoking the whole time and then he got me for paraphernalia and then I did do a breathalyzer and I was way over the legal limit, but he couldn't give me a DUI because I wasn't in the process of driving. I told him I was sitting here drinking on a bottle, which I I was drinking a bottle while I was driving the four hours home and had it pretty much almost polished off. But he couldn't prove that I was driving under the influence. So he let me go. And then my, uh, brother uh came and got me well in the process of my brother coming in and getting me i uh had another pipe stashed in my jeep which i grabbed out my brother was taking me to town and i was super intoxicated and i started i had also a bag of weed that i stashed well my brothers had a job in law enforcement and i pack a bowl and i'm you know, frustrated, telling my brother how, like, I just got laid off and all this, and I start smoking, and my brother was like, don't, don't do that, so, and I was basically, you know, just belligerently drunk, and was like, fuck you, I'm gonna do what I want, next thing you know, uh, my brother's pulled over, and me and him are having a bit of a scuffle on the, on the side of the road, and somebody called us in, and, and I mean, we're, we're sitting there scrapping it out for a while, just yelling at each other. And then things started getting really physical. And my brother and I were brawling it out pretty good. And then my brother kind of pushed me. And then in the haste of everything, I kind of lost sight of my brother. And then I felt somebody else come up to grab me. Well, I swung just, you know, a haymaker at whoever you know grabbed me thinking it was my brother and I it the hit connected and I looked back 
and it was a uh, sheriff. Oh, shit. And then next thing you know, I was uh, being taken to the ground and just by a whole plethora of uh, law enforcement. And, I mean, they're just wailing on me. And, I mean, I, I gave that sheriff, like, a good, a good you know, hook and stuff. And they get me to the ground, and they're, they're roughing me up a little bit. And my, my older brother's kind of, you know, telling them, like, hey, like, you know, he's not resisting as they're, like, you know, quit resisting. And, I mean, they're, they're hitting me with their batons and punching me. And, and the cop I hit finally, like, kind of all the other officers kind of chilled out and I sobered up I mean like that was the quickest I think I've ever sobered up in in my life and I thought I was going to be facing some pretty hard time but talking to the cop and everything he kind of said he didn't he didn't announce his presence and everything and he didn't go by the book so he was able to convince the other cops not to give me the uh ticket for assault on an officer and everything but one of the stipulations of that which I, I had to go to court one of the stipulations that i had for them not doing that was to complete a uh, drug and alcohol course so i did 143 days sober i moved back to my hometown again and was uh living with my living with my parents again things are really really starting to look up i got a a job uh working for an arborist and stuff and life's going really good you know i'm not i'm actually doing the steps on the program and stuff and getting sober and everything and you know have money and stability and everything and then i graduate graduate the program and the night I graduated the program I was driving downtown and noticed my buddy's truck that I hadn't seen in forever you know I hadn't been going out or anything and it's in front of the bar that you know the one of the local watering holes I used to go to so I decided to stop in and see him and went there with the intention of not drinking or anything but then he he was able to convince me to have a drink with him and stuff and celebrate and then next thing you know everybody's buying me a drink because you know they hadn't seen me in forever you know the bar family and everything so next thing you know I'm doing a bunch of shots drinking and then I feel like in these situations addicts like to test themselves whether that be right, right or wrong you said that your intention was to go see your buddy, but whether you wanted it to be or not, this was going to be a test. Yeah. I test myself like just to see kind of what, what would happen. I, I know it was really stupid, like in early sobriety to go in there and stuff. And I knew it was wrong, but part, like part of me wanted to see if I, I could do, if I could do it. Well, couldn't say no and then next thing you know he we go out to his car and we're we're blowing lines of cocaine and next thing I know is I remember coming to at home showing my mom my certificate you know that I got from a treatment and she looks at me and is basically like you didn't even let the ink dry on that before you went out and 
it got all sauced up, you know? So that's the thing with addiction. Uh, Our reward systems are all messed up. So when we're feeling good, when we've accomplished something, in this case, sobriety itself, your brain's telling you this is the perfect time to use. Right. So my my parents are kind of like, well, if you're going to be doing that, like, you know, we can't really be in our house. So, you know, I, you know, plead with them, tell them, you know, it won't, won't happen again. And, you know, and I have a pretty pretty dangerous job, you know, uh, doing tree work and stuff. And then that's when I picked up the Adderall habit yet again, you know, a little, little bit of motivation in the morning. I come to find out other people I work with too were way into Adderall and everything. So we all kind of went and kind of all of us had our habit and then, I started dating a girl and she liked drinking and stuff as much as I did. So I started like just quit kind of going to work there for a while. And I would no call, no show all the time. And my boss this during COVID, you know, couldn't really find anybody to work. So he kind of just dealt with it and everything. And then I was supposed to go to a, uh, a rescue class for work that was in a different town. And I went there and ended up getting so drunk. I didn't wake up in time for the rescue class. So I was kind of let go from that job for a little bit. And then I kind of convinced him to let me come back to work for him about a month later because he was really hurting hurting for people and I needed some money and he kind of told me you know you gotta sober up a little bit so I kind of obliged and sobered up a little bit and you know I wasn't drinking every night it was kind of a weekend thing and I quit doing Adderall and then things were kind of looking up and then uh, winter layoff happened so I applied for a job down at a uh, ski resort doing snow removal and I somehow got the job and went down there and was really, really enjoying the job and everything. But I was super lonely, didn't know anybody there, didn't really get along with my uh, coworkers and stuff. So I started drinking pretty heavily again and stuff to try to make friends and stuff. And even when I was out at the bar drinking, I really couldn't make any friends or anything. So I was just too socially awkward. And and then eventually one day I was getting sauced up in town on my uh, day off and I decided to drive back to the employee housing. Well, I hit a chunk of black ice and hit a guardrail with my uh, car and stuff and then wasn't able to pull over right away and stuff and then drove my car down a couple a couple miles to a turn off and stuff and got out and there wasn't a whole lot of damage but then went back into my car to text a friend and stuff and I heard a knock on my window and I looked up and there was a uh, sheriff sitting there 
So sheriff kind of said, you know, we got to call in a possible impaired driver. And, you know, I, he asked me if I would do a field sobriety test. And I, I said, yes, which I failed horribly. And then when it came to him asking me to do the breath test, I refused that. And then thinking, you know, I'm going to be smart and get off on this. He doesn't have anything. Well, he put me in handcuffs and took me to jail. And I was charged with uh, my first, my first DUI. So then I get, I get fired from my job there because you need a, license and everything and i refuse so in montana you lose your license on a refusal to blow so my parents you know are really unhappy with me because i just threw away a really a really good opportunity making really good money doing something i really really enjoy and i was really hating on myself and everything and then my uh, boss, I was doing tree work. His son also got a DUI and then got a DUI a week later after he got a different DUI. So he kind of understood what I was going through and he reluctantly took me back under the condition that I stay sober and do do a program or something. Well, this time around, I was able to convince the lady that was doing my evaluation if I had to do treatment that I basically lied my way through it so I wouldn't have to do treatment or anything this time since it was my first DUI and my previous uh, drug arrest uh, and punching that cop didn't come up on my uh, on my record because I was able to get it deferred and I went so many years without getting into kind of any sort of trouble. So that was off my record and I didn't bring up that arrest to her. So I didn't have to go through any form of uh, treatment. And I was pretty stoked on that. And next thing you know is I'm kind of wasn't really happy with, with work. My, my parents eventually kicked me out of the house for drinking. So my boss was letting me live in his uh, motorhome out on his uh, farm and stuff. Well, I basically got super depressed and everything and started drinking, using like anything, I, any drug I could find under the sun. You know, it didn't matter what it, what it was. And he basically said, you know, that you were supposed to sober up. So you're done. And then, then, you know, my parents, my parents wouldn't take me back. I didn't have a place to go. So I applied for a job four hours away from where I was living and got a job with a uh, climbing arborist uh, four hours away. So scraped together what little money I had left and went up there and started working for that arborist up there. and. You know, it was awesome and stuff, but one thing he he was a big a big drinker and everything and would smoke pot and stuff. And I mean that's my boss. I mean, we would instead of coffee in the morning it was we're we're drinking beer and you know, beer in a bowl to wake up and all this and he kinda didn't know I really had all these other drug habits too and 
I ran into a, an old high school buddy and he had some moonshine one night and I went out and got totally shit house. I ended up getting into another uh, accident and totaled out my car and got another DUI. And this was, you know, six, seven months, only six, seven months from my other DUI, you know. So I spent spent a couple days in in jail and got out and was on a on a breathalyzer. Well I couldn't quit drinking while I was on the breathalyzer. I would, you know, try to plan it out so I would wake up blowing my machine. I would I had it down to where I could have two to three beers depending on if I started drinking right away. I did that and would have a couple of beers, you know, in the morning after I blew and then wait all day until I had to blow that, you know, at night before I went to bed. And then I would drink a little bit more after that. And it was, you know, just really, really sketchy. But I was like, oh, I'm speeding, speeding the system and all this. Well, one night, you know, I, I was kind of pushed it already on like my three beer limit and it was getting a little bit later and I was kind of like ah, another you know another one won't really hurt and the next thing you know is like up to you know seven eight beers and I was kind of, you know felt good had had a buzz and I was like hell yeah like this feels good and shit but then the next morning I blew into my machine and I blew blew hot and I got a notice to appear in court on a contempt charge. And well, so to get kind of out of that, I uh, talked to a lawyer, a lawyer friend of mine, and he told me to go get an evaluation done and get to another program. And this time it actually stuck and I haven't, been drinking or using drugs for um, three months now. I had a bit of a relapse three three months ago, but now that I'm not using drugs or drinking everything, you know, life life's really kind of fallen into place. I'm uh, studying to get my arborist certification. I'm studying to get my wildland firefighter certification. I'm mending my relationship with uh, my family and everything, you know, and things are finally, finally looking good. Like I'm pretty stoked on that. Like everything's not perfect because I'm having to deal with everything now, like getting my credit rebuilt, you know, be, at learning to be an adult and everything. Cause I, all I did was party and everything. So I never, I never really learned to, take care of myself because I was just always living in the moment. So it's been an, an awesome change. It has been a struggle, but I mean, I'm, I'm glad things have finally stuck. I have uh, my best friend who's been uh, sober for nine years now that's always pressured me to get sober and everything. And it's, it's finally sticking and he, he wants to start building a business and, so that's kind of where my focus is at now is just, you know, staying sober and building something with him. And I 
I'm I'm pretty proud of how far I've come, you know. And that was the biggest thing was just, you know, getting getting some goals kind of going for myself and sticking to them because I never my my only goal back in the day was, you know, to party and you know, keep the party going. It's interesting because throughout your journey you had so many conditions upon which were meant to help your recovery conditions from your parents, conditions from the justice system, conditions from your girlfriend, conditions from your boss, clearly meeting other people's conditions didn't do shit. You had to be about meeting your own goals and creating your own conditions. Right. Before it was literally like, I, I thought sobriety was, you know, like a, a punishment because it was like, oh, you you have to you have to do do this because we're we're telling you, you know. And then that like same thing with like the blow machine and stuff. I mean, that's I think that those things are pretty counterproductive, somewhat to. That's another thing too. Like you know, being an addict, you you like we'll find workarounds or you know excuses as why why we're using you know we'll give ourselves an excuse you know I'm just super glad I am where I am now but I mean now I I do have to work work extremely harder and stuff because of you know having two DUIs it's hard getting work in the field I I want and everything but you know I just keep going and you know prove to people that have changed and and that I'm going to, you know, keep changing for the better. But, and, uh, sorry about that. I felt like I was kind of rambling. No, dude, you did great. Awesome. Thank you, man. I appreciate everything that you do and, uh, keep it real, man. Like I said, I really appreciate what you do. I think it's awesome. We begin to be indoctrined with anti-drug propaganda at a very young age. But often that messaging is filled with half-truths, exaggerated anecdotal stories that don't necessarily encapsulate the true burden of drug use and addiction. So what happens when those in our closest circle become more of an adversary and those conditions are forced upon us? Regardless of intention, they become just another roadblock in which we find a detour. Because at the end of the day, when we're given that choice, the decision whether to indulge in our vices is to be one made on our own. Because recovery is a path to be carved on our own. Not one to be dictated by external forces. I'm Quick Nick. Thanks for listening. Addicts in the Dark is brought to you in part by Melissa Armstrong Coaching. Check out Melissa Armstrong at www.strongarm.ca. That's www.strongarm.ca.